Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. On June 24, 2022, the Supreme Court issued its opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, overturning the nearly 50-year precedent set in Roe v. Wade. A year has passed since the ruling dissolved the constitutional right to an abortion, and its impact is felt across the country. To discuss the first year without Roe, I'm joined by Caroline Kitchener, who covers abortion at The Washington Post. She won the 2023 Pulitzer Prize in National Reporting for her work covering the consequences of the Dobbs decision, from unwanted teenage pregnancies to abortion clinic shutdowns. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So it's been about a year. When you think back to June of 2022, what did you think this year was going to look like and how has it compared to your expectations? Oh, man, that's the question that I've been asking (laughs) everybody. (laughs) It's it's the big question, right? It is the big question. You know, I... I think that in a lot of ways, it's what we expected. And in a lot of ways, it's not. Um, I'll start, I think, with the things that have been surprising to me. You know, I, I think we knew from the Texas abortion ban, which took effect in September of 2021, that, you know, when abortion is banned or mostly banned, women are resilient. They find ways to access abortion. Um, many of them, not all of them. But, you know, if, if you want to end a pregnancy, you are going to try really hard to do that. Um, but, so but what, is, what does that mean if you live in a state where you can't? Does that mean travel? Does that mean doing something that's illicit? It means travel or in today's landscape, it means going online and tapping into these burgeoning abortion pill networks that we are seeing grow and grow and grow. So I would say the most surprising thing to me has been the extent to which these abortion pill networks, many of which operate in a kind of legal gray area, pills are shipped from overseas, how fast those have grown and how many women, um, we don't have hard numbers, but we know from reports from these organizations that are doing this that it numbers in the tens of thousands. Um, we know that that women are finding those options and those options are a lot cheaper and in some cases 
easier because you can do it from your own home and the pills are mailed to you. So those, I would say, the presence and the growth of the underground pill networks have been a a real defining characteristic of this post-threat landscape. So can I ask you, what will be the effect on these underground pill mills uh, if the Mifeprestone ruling goes against what progressives want with respect to reproductive rights? That's a big question. Um, I think that uh, you could see them tapped into even more, um, you know, even even more, you know, you, you then will not be able to get pills um, or you won't be able to get the, the mifepristone misoprostol combo at clinics um, or through, um, you know, all of the strictly legal pathways that people access them now. And I think you could see more demand through organizations like Aid Access and Las Libres that get their pills from overseas. You know, that you will see, you know, if that was to happen, um, which now is, you know, if it is to happen, it's it's pretty far in the future. But you would see clinics switch to many clinics switch to a misoprostol only model. So it wouldn't be kind of the the end of legal medication abortion, certainly. There are statistics that I think you've reported on and others have about how many fewer abortions have taken place since the ruling. Do you have any accurate statistics on that? Um, I can't rattle off the numbers off the top of my head, but uh, a, a really um, some really important research on the topic has been done by um, an organization called We Count, and they have been tracking at the two month mark, at the six month mark, and 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 they will have um, you know some some more data coming out. Um, the number of the change in number of legal abortions in the United States that are happening in clinics and um, and through sort of the, the legal mail pathways, um, and we know that you know I think it's about. 10% fewer abortions. Uh, but the big question is there is, you know, how many people are self-managing through these pill networks, networks? And that's just a, a really big question. So, I, you know, I, I was really hoping and I, I think that that our editors were hoping that at the one year mark, we would be able to say something definitive to answer the question that is on everybody's minds about, you know, how many abortions aren't happening. But it's 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 a tough one. It's not an easy question to poll, Mm-mm. I would Mm-mm. imagine. No. Could you give us a, a kind of a summary of what the states' reactions have been? Uh, which states have most quickly moved to be most prohibitive with respect to abortion? Which states are safe with respect to that? And and how these debates are playing out? Well, you've seen, I think, some change over time. So right out of the gate, you had, I think it was about it was about fifteen states uh, that had trigger laws or, you know, other laws that were kind of waiting in the wings. Um, And, you know, within a day, you just saw one after the other after the other. And those were, for the most part, near total bans. Um, So, you know, some of them had exceptions for rape and incest. Some of them didn't even have that. Um, You really saw a race at the beginning to be the most restrictive. And what has, I think, been interesting over time is that Republicans saw what happened in the midterm elections and they saw what happened in, you know, Wisconsin with their Supreme Court vote. You've seen again and again voters come out to support abortion rights. And and what we are seeing now on the state level are um, some Republicans backing a different type of ban, a ban that, you know, 12-week 
12-week bans recently passed in North Carolina and Nebraska, and those actually allow the vast majority of abortions to continue, about, you know, over 90 percent of abortions to continue. So, I, you know, I, I think it's too soon to say whether that's going to be a trend, but I do think it's interesting that these two, you know, quite conservative states have decided to go in that direction. So is there a debate going on in those states within the Republican Party? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. As to whether, and, and, and which mm-hmm. side has more, you, you think the 12-week contingent has more momentum than the six-week? I, I think it's 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 too early to say. I mean, North Carolina, I watched very closely and I went down to Raleigh to talk with folks and it was a very, very intense and contentious process starting in January about how far they were going to go. And in the end, there was a group, so they they, they needed an, enough votes for a, to override the governor's veto. And they, in the end, were just not able to win over a couple of moderate Republicans who had made campaign promises and said, you know, we're not going to go any farther. They could not persuade those folks to go any further than 12 weeks. So, you know, I, I think that, that they were watching what was happening in other states. They were watching what happened in the midterms, and they just realized that this was not going to be a politically smart thing for them to do. Do you have a sense, based on the polling and your research and reporting otherwise, about where Americans are on the spectrum of, of at what point an abortion should be legal up to? I mean, different countries in Europe have different limits, whether it's 12 weeks, 15 weeks, all the way till the end, almost. Is there is there an American consensus on this point? Not yet. Um, I mean, we do know that the vast majority of Americans were not supportive of Roe v. Wade being overturned. But I think, and there is, you know, quite a quite a bit of um, polling on you know total bans and 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 six week bans because that's what we've seen more of. But you know, these twelve week bans are new. Um, North Carolina was the first state to pass one, and so um, you know, I think more polling on those restrictions will be done soon. And I think we'll be able to say something more definitive about that probably if I had to guess in a couple months. So one of the most alarming things is even in states that have some restrictions, but allow for exceptions for the health of the mother, as you've reported, the language used to describe what that means, what the threshold of of harm to the mother is, is somewhat vague and hard to, to understand what is really allowed and what's not allowed. Can you talk a little bit about the problem of people who are having difficult pregnancies where there's a real danger to the life of the mother, but doctors and hospitals are concerned that the language is not protective enough of them? This has been a huge problem since Roe was overturned. Um, I was actually just at a conference for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is the largest gathering of OBGYNs nationally. And um, I met a lot of doctors from states where abortion is banned that had very different stories to tell. It was interesting. You know, everybody that I talked to, like right off the bat, when Roe was overturned, it was it was a mess. No one knew what to do in these situations. And suddenly they were seeing patients who were in danger, but no one could say sort of how in danger they were. And therefore, they weren't sure whether they qualified for an abortion under the laws. Um, and. What I heard from those OBGYNs is that over time, 
you know, at least in some hospitals, systems have developed. Um, task forces have been created. Um, there have been procedures put in place. So, you know, OK, um, you know, maybe it's two physicians who are needed to sign off. Um, you know, if it's unclear, maybe you have to do a call to a lawyer. I, I think in a lot of places there are systems that are being put in place. But in a lot of places, there are not systems that have been put in place. And, you know, I, I've spoken I, I did a story about two women in Florida who um had a life-threatening pregnancy complication. And the doctors involved in that case had absolutely no guidance and no idea what they could do and what they couldn't. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, could you talk about the, the case of Anya Cook? Because I think, you know, we talk about numbers and statistics, but nothing really reveals the issue as deeply as just telling telling the story. Yeah, absolutely. So far and away, the most common health complication that has been affected by abortion bans is called uh, premature, pre-viable premature rupture of the membranes. That's PPROM for short. Basically, that's when your water breaks early um, and bef- it breaks, you know, long before the fetus is viable. And I did a story about um, Anya Cook and actually her friend, Shanae Smith-Cunningham, who, you know, within a day of each other, both experienced PPROM in Florida. They were both farther along than 15 weeks, which is the current abortion ban in Florida. And Anya almost died. Um, She went to the hospital when her water broke and the doctor said, you know, I'm I'm sorry, we we can't do anything. Typically in PPROM, in a PPROM situation, the standard of care is to give the woman an option to say, um, you know, I can induce, you know, I can either induce this pregnancy, um, you know, or not, but there are risks to continuing um, very serious ones. And uh, they didn't give Anya that option. And, you know, she asked and it was because of the abortion law. And then the next. Even, even yeah. though the language in, in the floor law, I presume, says something about the health of the mother. Right. It's, it says something about, you know, the, the, the life of the mother. And um, but the, the, pro- the problem with PPROM is that when your water breaks, you are at a high risk for hemorrhage. You're at a high risk for sepsis um, infection. But you're not exhibiting those things right then in that moment. And sometimes they don't materialize. So what doctors are afraid of is that PPROM does not sort of count as a urgent, immediate enough of a crisis um, for them to act. And so what happened in Anya's case is, you know, she went home. She was very upset. Um, she then tries to sort of go about her life as normal. And she ends up um, hemorrhaging in the bathroom of the hair salon. And, uh, you know, she loses half of her blood and she's rushed to the hospital. And she does survive, but barely. You know, they, she was in critical condition. And, uh, and, and that could have been taken care of at the hospital when she went, you know, that first night. And it would have been pre-Dobbs. Yes, she would have certainly been given that option pre-dots. And are there stories of doctors on the other end of the spectrum who, despite the ambiguity of the language, are going ahead and providing that service? Yes. Um, and, and, and this, I think, is something that we will hear a lot more about in the months to come. You know, I, I, I am interested in, in how much of this comes down to the hospital, uh, because there are some hospitals that have decided that, for example, this pre-viable PPROM situation they can act. Um, they have decided that. And it's interesting when you talk to the Republic, you know, when I when I interviewed the Republican lawmakers who drafted the 15 week law um, for that story about Anya, they said to me, oh, well, this is clearly covered by the law. This is clearly falls into the medical exception. 
And obviously, that's not how doctors feel. And that's not how doctors see it. And that's not how hospitals see it. But that is what Republicans are saying. So we're sort of, I think, entering this period where, you know, hospitals really have to decide what are we comfortable with. And I think that, you know, it will be interesting to see how much, you know, risk they are, they are, you know, they feel willing to take. You know, what's interesting is I hear you speak. There seems to be two sides to this. And, you know, I don't practice in this particular area of law. I'm not a tort lawyer. But I wonder if there's enough of an argument that the P-prime situation is covered, even by the current somewhat ambiguous language, that that a hospital's failure to engage in the procedure might invite a lawsuit from the woman. Oh, absolutely. I think that that is... Has that been contemplated? mm -hmm, Yes. I think that is something that is on on a lot of doctors and hospitals' minds right now is figuring out, you know, how do we walk that balance? Because you're absolutely right. They could, you know, they could face consequences on the other side. Do you see any action possible in the near future in any way on abortion in the U.S. Congress? Mm. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess... reflect, I, you said, mm. <laughs> um, You know, in terms of, like, something that is really going to move the needle in a big way, like, you know, I know, I, I don't think that we're going to see Roe codified. Um, and I don't, you know, I would be surprised if... You know, they were able to, um, you know, if the Republicans were able to push through a strict ban, although, you know, I'm certainly not ruling that out. Um, I think a lot will come down to who wins the presidency in 2024, um, because while Biden hasn't really been able to do too terribly much to protect abortion access, if a Republican, if an anti-abortion Republican was to win, there are a lot of less well-known, less sort of publicized guidance and, you know, various um, letters of, of direction that the Biden administration has issued that a Republican could very quickly undo, some of which would have important implications for day-to-day abortion access right now. Are Republicans, as a general matter, super worried about what happened in Wisconsin in that Supreme Court race? I think they're very worried about what happened in all of these, all of these contests. I mean, you had you had Kentucky, you had Kansas. Like this is not just these are not blue states. No, and and I think that that has surprised a lot of people and worried a lot of people. And and I do think that that is why you're seeing these moderate Republicans so concerned. You have any thoughts about what the next year is going to look like? Well, I think the big question is whether the pro-choice side is going to be able to maintain the outrage that people felt and have felt over, you know, the months following the fall of Roe. Clearly, people are, you know, we're still thinking about it at the midterms. They were still thinking about it in Wisconsin with the Supreme Court race. But November 24 is a long way away. And the big question in my mind is, you know, will the outrage fade? Um, I don't know. Uh, But I think that, you know, a a lot of people are going to be really, really focused on making sure it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not an expert like you, but I would imagine that the the outrage wouldn't fade because they're going to continue to be stories like the ones you're telling about Anya Cook and others. But I guess we'll have to see. Right. Well, we're not going anywhere. (laughs) Caroline Kitchener, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. 
Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.